Good morning and welcome to this part of our service. I enjoyed the Sunday school and thanks for each of the teachers for taking their part. I also want to greet you in Jesus' name. This morning I plan to preach the last message on the sermon series that we've been doing on the plan of God's plan of salvation. And I didn't realize it before the Sunday school lesson on how, how well, how well it tied together. Our lesson focus is actually, um, mentioned several things that we will be looking at to cease from our own efforts to have peace with God, but rather to find rest through surrender and obedience to Him. <clears throat> The message title is Sanctified for God's Purpose. And the last time we we looked at um, repentance, and now we're going to look at the a few words, a few things that take place after after that and leading up into the sanctification uh, process, uh, justification, conversion, regeneration, adoption, <laughs> sanctification. And it's, I thought about splitting it up some more, but it, it all, it all is, it is so intertwined, it's so much the same that another sermon would almost be looking at the same things. So we're going to be trying to put it all into one here this morning. So again, I'm going to be doing a lot of reading, uh, a lot of verses right off my paper instead of turning to it. Uh, so we can, so I can keep it moving. First of all, I'm going to start with Genesis 2. Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And the seventh day God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested. Sorry. And the seventh day God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. What took place here when God sanctified the seventh day, or back then the Sabbath day? You know, at the end of his work on the first six days of creation, God said that it was good and it was very good, but on the seventh day, he did not do any work, but instead he rested, and it's this rest that we talked about before this morning. It was not because he was tired, but he was set an example, setting an example for man to follow. He had completed all his work, and even his mind was at rest on this day. He wasn't thinking about creating new things. And he blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. And we have the idea of setting it apart from the other six days and making it holy. And there was a very obvious difference between the first six days and the seventh day. And why did God do this? And God knew that if all seven days of the human week would be the same, we would fail to stop and recognize God and worship Him for all He did for us. 
And a quote that I found was, without this consecrated day, religion itself would fail, and the human mind, becoming centralized, would soon forget its origin and end. So God set it apart, made it different, and made it holy. That on this day, man would pause from all he does, physically and mentally, and focus on his creator and his holiness. And this is what God wants us to, for each one of us. He wants to set us apart and to make us holy. Are you holy this morning? Am I holy? Is it possible for us to be holy? 1 Peter 1.16, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And Peter was quoting out of Leviticus 11, verses 44 and 45, For I am the Lord your God, ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. In Psalms 86, 1 and 2, it's a prayer of David. It says, Bow down, bow down thine ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am holy. O thou my God, save thy servant that trusteth in thee. In these words, David is not being arrogant and lifting himself up because he starts with raising God up and himself being below him. It says, bow down thine ear, O Lord. And he admitted that he needed God in his life. He asked God to preserve his life. And then he makes a statement, for I am holy. And how could he make this statement? He ends with the saying, Save thy servant that trusts within thee. And what do what does a servant do? A servant obeys his master in all things. And David had lived his life in a way that he knew would please God. And this is taking on God's holiness and not his own. And if you read through the rest of that psalm, you could get the idea that David understood the New Testament with several of the things he said. In, uh, in the following verses. <clears throat> so there's a, there's a process that happens when we find salvation through Jesus. And as I referred to, we, all, we may call it the sanctification process. You know, even though we are the one with the sin through the plan of salvation that God put in place, we can take on the righteousness of Jesus and we can be righteous and holy before a holy God. And this is what we want to look at this morning. We're going to start with justification, uh, Romans 5. Actually, I'm going to read the last two verses in Romans 4. And then I'll read Romans 5, 1 to 11. And I won't be spending a lot of time in the, these verses again, but there's a few we're going to pick out as we go through uh, this, this message here. So starting at verse 24 in uh, Romans 4. 
But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses, was raised again for our justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commandeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we have now received the atonement. And then dropping down to verse 19 yet. Many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made right. So the word justification is to show or to prove to be right or reasonable and righteous in the sight of God. is to render just or innocent, free, justified, to be righteous. Though sinful, man was made righteous before God. And we often use the word justify in uh, to justify our actions of what we said. We give an explanation of why we did what we did to justify that action. And this can be done in a good way or it can be done in a way to justify wrong actions. But we justify it by putting the blame on, on someone or something else that took place. So who justifies us and how are we justified? And this, what we're speaking here, this, the message this morning is probably one of the biggest, uh, the most important parts to get a hold of is these, these verses that we read that Paul wrote. And as we go along, we're going to also look at James, what I alluded to in Sunday school and what he has to say about justification. And God is God is the one who created man with, with a desire for a relationship with him. And we see this in the garden. They, he walked in the garden with man after he created them. He, he communicated with them. He fellowshiped with them. And when sin separated man from God, it was God that desired to have that relationship restored. It was God, not man, that designed a way that this would be possible. And if we are not careful, we can forget this detail and begin to do things that we think may please God and justify us. And when we start going down this path, there is no stopping because there is no amount of good things that we can do that will give us the peace 
that we are pleasing God. And when man sets these requirements to be right before God, it will continue to be changed and added, and it will just continue down that path. So it's God's mercy and grace that we who are sinners can be justified. We look at verses 8 and 9 of the verses I read. But God commanded his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And you'll continue to hear things this morning that we looked at in other messages. But it's impossible to go through this message and not do that. All these things are possible because of what happened before in the messages that we looked at before. We're justified by the blood of Jesus. And God had this all planned out from from the fall in the garden. And he sent Jesus to shed his blood so that we who are sinners can be justified before God. And this took place these many years before we were living. And if you think about it in that way, this all happened 2,000 years ago. And it's actually foolish to think that 2,000 years later, I can do something in my own righteousness to make this plan better. Jesus shed his blood for all people and made a way that all men can be redeemed and be brought back to God. And it is through this blood that we escape the wrath of God that will come upon the children of disobedience. We're justified by faith, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into His this grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And faith, again, is based on believing something that we have not seen for ourselves, but we are convinced by the evidence of what we see that it is truth. We see the evidence in the lives of others, and we trust the source of the information, the Word of God, and this is the faith that moves us. And this is where man makes his first move towards God and accepting his plan. I believe that Jesus died for me. I'm confident that his blood is sufficient. And I trust that this is all I need to be right with God. Which is also righteousness. I've looked at the evidence and I'm convinced that this is the only way back. Our faith in Jesus is a central part of our justification before God. We're justified by our by our works. Turn to James 2. What doth it profit, my brethren, that a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, 
Be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, and doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works, when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness that he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by which a man is justified and not by by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And here's where we where we cross the aisle. Everything before this, we said we cannot do anything to earn this salvation. How are we justified by our works? James asked the question, if any man have faith and no works, can his faith save him? He goes as far as saying that faith alone is dead if it don't have works with it. But Paul said, we are saved by faith and not by works. Are Paul and James contradicting each other? Let's look at the two examples here that we have. In verse 21, it says, Abraham was justified by his works. And what was this work that James is talking about? God commanded him to offer his son Isaac as his as a sacrifice to him. And Abraham obeyed him and followed through with it until God stopped him. <clears throat> See us in verse 22. See us thou, faith wrought with his works, and by works has faith, was faith made perfect. And in the ESV, it says, you see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And basically what it's saying is, while Abraham was doing these works, his faith was very active. And to the point that through these works, his faith was made perfect. And how do we get to this place of having perfect faith? And these works that James is talking about are not our works. But they are things that God requires of us, and all that he requires of us is obedience to him. If we read, if we read these verses again, putting obedience into the place of works, and I don't think we're doing the scripture any injustice, if you read other translation, you'll see the word obedience coming out. Was not Abraham our father justified by his obedience? When he had offered when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar, seest thou how faith wrought with his obedience, and by obedience was his faith made perfect. 
This was not Abraham's idea. He could have made the choice to sacrifice Isaac to please God and to justify himself for maybe something that he did. And it would not have had the same effect. But it was Abraham's faith in God that made him to go through with this unimaginable inner struggle that he must have went through to place that bundle of wood on Isaac's back and to light a torch and carry that fare to the top of that mountain knowing full well what was going to take place and what he was asked to do by God. And Abram could have very well said that he has faith in God and everything that he does is good, but he knows that a loving God would never ask him to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. He just wouldn't do that. And besides that, God had promised him that it was going to be through Isaac that he was going to raise up a people more in number than the sand of the seashore. So how could God be serious that he was supposed to follow through with this? So it was in this scenario where Abraham's faith was made perfect in the one that required works. He had tremendous faith. He believed that what God said was all he needed to know. He didn't need to know the outcome. And he had confidence that if he obeyed, God would bless him for doing that, no matter again what the outcome is. He trusted God to the point that he would have obeyed God down to the smallest detail and knew that God would work it out for his glory. Do I have that kind of faith? Rahab was not a Jew. She probably did not know much about this God that the Jews worship. What she did know was the things that she heard about the children of Israel leaving Egypt and all the miracles that took place in the battles they won up until this point. She had heard and saw enough that when she encountered these spies, her faith, which was probably still very shallow, affected the way she responded to these spies. She could have turned them into the men of the city, and why wouldn't she? What did she have to lose for doing this? But through her limited knowledge of God, she seemed to understand that she was dealing with someone bigger than the children of Israel. And she did what she could to protect the spies and to save their lives. And because of that, she was justified before God and her life was spared when the city walls fell. Again, she did not come up with these ideas on her own to justify herself. So God would spare her. But it was out of a fear for God, the God that was with the children of Israel, that she made the choices that she made and to do the right thing. Our obedience, our works, play a very important part in our justification. And Paul does agree with James, though he doesn't use the same language. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves, that is the gift of God. 
not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. He just got done saying, not of works. And then he says, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, or obedience, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Again, walking in them would have the, have the thought of obeying what we know that God asks us to do. Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And we can go to Galatians 5. He lists the works of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. And Jesus, again, is our perfect example. If you go back to verse 19 in Romans 5. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Again, Jesus' work was not his own idea, but he obeyed his Father, and because of his obedience, we are made righteous if we accept what God had, what God put in place for us. So can we be righteous? Isaiah 64, 4 and 8. But we are all as unclean thing and our, all our righteousness are as filthy rags and we do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. But now, O Lord, thou art, thou art our, our father. We are the clay and thou art the powder. We are the work of thine hand. We of ourselves are not righteous, and our best efforts are as filthy rags. But if we are moldable clay, as Isaiah says here, and allow God to work in us, he will mold us and make us like himself. If we do the things that he asks us to, if we do the things that the life that Jesus lived out, his example, we take on his nature and his righteousness and holiness, not our own. Doctrines of the Bible puts justification this way. Justification is the gracious act of God in which he imputes to all penitent believers, those who repent of their sins, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is the only way we can be righteous this morning. And John tells us the word became flesh, referring to Jesus So we have a living example of a righteous life right here in our hands. We have the Bible. We have, we have the, the living word of Jesus that actually lived here on this earth. And this is the living word that, that he's talking about that became flesh. And this book from cover to cover points to Jesus. It is Jesus and it's the teachings and the life of Jesus. And this is what we are called to obey. And when we see our sin in the face of a holy God and we experience true repentance, we accept God's way, which is lived out in the life of Jesus, and we obey these teachings and we live obedient to Him, take on His righteousness. 
is the result of, of Jesus living within us. <clears throat> Romans six sixteen to 18. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, whose servants you are, whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Again, obedience from the heart, the form of the doctrine, the word of God, which was delivered you. Being made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Again, the righteousness of Jesus. Deuteronomy 6, 24 and 25. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is at this day. And it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as he hath commanded us. There's an Old Testament where the where Moses was teaching the children of Israel by following the commandments of God that he gave them, they would be it would be unto them righteousness. <clears throat> Justification brings peace with God. Verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's another subject we touched on this morning. I don't think I need to make much comments on this. But if you have experienced this justification through Jesus, you will know what this peace is like. Is a peace that passes all understanding. When I understand that by accepting God's plan and living in obedience to Him, I will escape the wrath of that judgment. And that brings peace that cannot be found in doing my own works to please God. Conversion and regeneration. Jesus' words to Peter in Luke twenty-two thirty-two. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. To convert something is to turn it around and to make a complete change. Well, when we when we convert electric, we, we most times it's, we use the term for converting single phase into three phase. It's not the same. You cannot do the same things with it. And other examples, we take swampy forests and we convert them to, to uh, farmland. We tile them. We take crude iron ore and make steel and make mighty ships and other things out of steel. The silica sand converted into a clear glass that we have today. The change that happens cannot be denied. It's an obvious, an obvious change. And for a child of God, it is a change of mind, a change of heart, and the change of our affections, and the change of everything needed to bring us back to God. There's nothing the same from the old to the new. If there is no change in a person, there's probably no conversion. And we have examples in the Bible. The one that probably comes to mind first is uh, Paul on his way to Damascus. And the jailer who had an interaction with Paul and Silas. 
And it changed his life in one night. He wasn't, it wasn't the same man when the sun came up that morning. There was a drastic change that took place that was very obvious, could not be denied. And regeneration is the working of that spirit that brings this change. And this word is only used twice in the Bible, but it, but the theme is woven through the whole entire New Testament. In Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness with which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. In Ephesians 4.24, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And as, as Justin alluded to earlier, the word we more often think of is uh, being born again. Or a new man or a new creature is, is used more often. John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, early I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. 1 Peter 1, 23, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And this born again is another phrase that is used freely among the professing Christians. But do we understand the significance of, of the fact that to get into the kingdom of heaven, what this, what this, uh, this new birth or being born again, what the significance of this really is and the results of the, this second birth? Jesus told Nicodemus not to be surprised when he told him that he must be born again, but emphasize the fact that to get into the kingdom of God, everyone must be born again through water and through the Spirit. Being born again is more than an overused phrase that holds no value, but is a new birth that takes place just the same as our natural birth. And some verses that would would allude to that, not using the exact words, but 1 Corinthians 4.15, For though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. 1 Peter 1.3-4, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the, from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Begotten has the meaning to conceive or to, to bring forth as, as a birth. And at the time of our, our first birth, our natural birth, we receive from our parents their nature. And then our children receive our nature. And this nature is, is, the, is the sin nature that we've been talking about. And we are innocent of this when we're children, but as we become to the age of accountability, we need to recognize that this nature that we receive from our parents is not able to have a relationship with God. And when we accept God's plan of salvation for us through Jesus, and we repent of the past sins, we take on the righteousness of Jesus, and we become born again. And this time we receive the nature of of our Heavenly Father.
We become a new man. And it's not of ourselves, but through our obedience to Jesus, who was obedient to his Father, and we receive his Spirit, which is washing us and changing us. Again, regeneration is an obvious change. And this leads us right into our next thought of uh, adoption. With our first nature, we are not part of God's family. Sin will not be part of his kingdom. But when we receive this new birth, God was willing to adopt us into his family where we will be part of a much larger family, where we will have brothers and sisters in Christ through adoption in the same way into the same family by the same Father, our Heavenly Father. And it's it's very much the same as, as life here. No child can become a member of a family without the adoption by the head of the home. I remember being at least one of the adoptions of, it would have been my nephew, my brother and his wife, one of their children. And my brother, as the head of the home, Ahead of the family, he took the stand and expressed his desire to ad- adopt the child, and that they loved him as they were, as he was his own, and that he would take care of his needs. And it is the same with us. If we accept Jesus as the only way, God will not be ashamed to call us His child, and He will take care of our needs. <clears throat> he will adopt us into his family. John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Sanctification. This kind of brings us full circle to where we started. Sanctification is to be set apart, consecrated to a special work, a cause, or a purpose. 2 Timothy 2.21 If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. In 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, he's addressing uh, his audience there. It's Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. In one verse, Peter pretty much mentioned everything we talked about this morning. Sanctification, obedience, blood of Jesus, grace, peace. <clears throat> the word sanctify is used many times in the first books of the Old Testament as God gave the laws to, to Moses. The word sanctified comes up often. The priests were to, to do all sorts of things to sanctify themselves before they went before God. They were to sanctify the things they used, the altar, the tools, the, all the, uh, everything that was involved. And the people themselves had to sanctify themselves before they performed their religious ceremonies. And God told Joshua to sanctify the people before they came 
before him to expose the sin of Achan. And why all this effort to sanctify everything when it appears useless? And I think there's, again, two reasons. And one we already talked about, and that would be thought of obedience. Were they going to obey God to the smallest detail? And how serious were they about God? The other reason would be to remember God as he did these things. All these things, these requirements, were done in preparation to meet God. As the priests sanctified themselves and the items used, I'm sure they remembered why they were doing it. Because they were about to come before a holy God who required obedience and they knew from previous experiences that disobedience caused God's wrath to be poured out. And it's the same with the people. As they did these required preparations, their mind was drawn from their other daily responsibilities to their coming before God, preparing to meet Him. Again, go back to the Sabbath day. Why did God sanctify the Sabbath day and make it holy? He set it apart from the other six days so men would not forget Him. And when this day comes, we refocus and we take our focus off all our earthly things and focus on our Creator God. And when we apply this word to the work of God and setting apart His people to a holy purpose, the word takes on added meaning of purity, holiness, and consecration to God. And this is the same thing that happens in our spiritual lives as we experience each part of God's salvation. We are sanctified. Our focus turns from ourselves and from the earthly to God and the heavenly. We are set apart for a new work, a special work, and a special purpose. We no longer are consumed by our agenda, but we open ourselves to God's purpose. And we may not always know where God wants us or what he wants us to do, but the key is to be sanctified, set apart, that in his own time God can use you for his purpose. J.B. Smith made the observation of the cause and effect of what happens between God and man through the sanctification process. God atones Man is redeemed. God justifies. Man is reckoned righteous. God regenerates. Man is born again. And God sanctifies. And man is made holy. In closing, the sanctification process is not complete until death. As the natural birth of a child, we expect it to grow and to learn as it matures. And something is not normal if this doesn't happen. And it's the same spiritually for a child of God. It's not normal if we do not continue to grow spiritually. My encouragement to you this morning, if you have not accepted Christ, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, you're only at the starting line. God decides where to draw the end of the line. Till then, cultivate a desire to learn to know God better through his word, through the teaching of his word, become sanctified 
and set apart for his purpose. Let's kneel for prayer.